Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today on LGBTQ&A, I'm talking to Brooke Sullivan. I think this is a really cool and real discussion about what it means to be trans and HIV positive in 2018. Brooke is also part of a study addressing PrEP usage in the trans and non-binary community which we talk about. And then while we're on the subject, I should mention that this summer I'm going to be doing AIDS Life Cycle, where I'll be cycling the 545 miles from San Francisco to Los Angeles to raise money for the LA LGBT Center and SF AIDS Foundation. The goal is to make AIDS a thing of the past. If you are able to contribute or know someone who would like to, I would absolutely love your support. There are links in the show notes, but a direct link is to fighthiv.org slash go to slash jeffmasters1. And then as always, don't forget to check out our old home on AfterBuzz TV. They are the number one place for all your TV after show discussions. All right, without further ado, here's Brooke. You are a part of the team that is addressing PrEP usage in the trans and gender nonconforming community. Yeah, so basically I'm one of the outreach or community health promoters for these studies. And we have two different studies. One is like a linkage study, so we link you to care. So that could be trans services, but mainly it's being linked to PrEP or predisposed prophylactics. And the other one is adherence. So we're like trying to find find out if I send you a text message, do you take your medication on time? It's because if adherence happens, then you're probably not going to acquire HIV. It's like a 99% assurance, which is great. It surprised me that this is one of the first studies to directly address the trans community when they're at such a heightened risk. <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of strange, right? You know, you'd think that the highest you know, risk community would be the number one. But, you know, if you look at the numbers also, there's a big community, you know, the gay community that just... They kind of came first in that sense. There's more money probably. I'm glad that we're here now. There's us and like another minority group like African-Americans that are still need PrEP. Because yeah. Because HIV is really high. The stat I saw said that I think of the newly diagnosed people with HIV, about 44% are black people. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, That's a massive number. It's huge. And so people who are trans and of color, I think the percent is 60%. I don't know if it was too much of a base comparison, but when you're at such a heightened risk of joblessness and homelessness and intimate partner violence, your personal health care takes a back seat. Yeah. A lot of trans and non-binary people don't feel safe in healthcare, you know, settings. A clinical setting isn't a safe place for a lot of trans people. And that's kind of why we brought in people like myself for the study to basically connect with the community so they do feel safe in these settings so they can come into our clinics and get tested and get the services they need. And then we help foster those relationships into safe clinics where they can get hormones or they can get dentistry or whatever it is that they're looking for. We'll connect them with services locally. So it sounds like there's two issues. One is that some, you mentioned hormones. Some people don't know how the drugs will actually uh, affect the hormones. And then the other part of that is access. Yeah. Because trans people don't need to be treated differently in the healthcare system on the whole. It's just that they are being discriminated against. We need to combat that. Yeah. I mean, that that is a huge thing. It's education. I work at UCSD. And when I went to go get my orchiectomy, they asked me if I needed to take a pregnancy test. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm here for orchiectomy. And they're like, huh? And I was like, I'm getting my balls removed. And they're like, oh, so no pregnancy test. I was like, no. And then all of a sudden, after that point, I got heed and treated like a male. Really? Yeah. And this is the establishment I work for. It's not that they're not sensitive, but those people were not trained appropriately. And that's systemic across the board for all trans people. You would also just assume that in that environment you're going for this procedure that they are trans competent. Of course you do. But unfortunately, 
we haven't made it a mandatory process for all these, you know, health providers. Um, you mentioned the hormones, the interaction between hormones and PrEP. Now, all the doctors in my organization will tell me that we don't have enough evidence to prove that, you know, there is no interaction. From a trans person's perspective, stepping out of my job seat, I started my HIV medication and I started my um, hormones at the same time. I don't know. It seems to be okay. <laughs> uh, it seems to have been effective. But once again, you know, the data is not there yet. Hopefully in the next five to 10 years, we can like validate 100%. But so they're only saying that we don't know if there is an effect on hormones because the science is not there when more or less we can assume it doesn't. Yeah, from the community's perspective, it doesn't because a lot of us in the community have seen over the years. But, you know, doctors are based off data, science is data, you know, and we can't just present something that hasn't been verified from scientific process. I guess that makes sense, like both ways, because I was reading too that we don't know how HIV penetrates in neovaginal tissue. Right. I was thinking, well, can't we just make the assumption that it would penetrate? We don't know percentages. Right. Yeah, you could you could make the assumption that it would be an issue or right. it would be problematic because there's still, you know, some plumbing connected, you know? I mean, trans people can be prescribed PrEP right now, right? Yeah, of course. You can get PrEP anywhere. You can ask your doctor in California. They have to prescribe it to you if you ask for it. In California, yes. but not the rest of the country. No. No, the rest of the country doesn't have the same rules per se. But, you know, the great part about it is if you do talk to your doctor or go to a local clinic or go to a place like Planned Parenthood where, you know, they're competent, you can ask them for this kind of prescription or doctor referral that would give you prescriptions. And Gilead, the provider of PrEP or Truvada, which is the name of the pill, does this um, advancing access program where they give you up to $3,600 worth of credit to pay for all your copay fees. Because at the end of the day, everybody wants to get to zero. And that would be the goal, you know, another generation, a full generation that does not have HIV. Can we define PrEP just for people, just in case? It is a daily pill that is prescribed by doctors. And if you take it and you have sex with someone who's HIV positive, your chances are greatly minimized yes it's almost 100 but we can't say that i think uh, unfortunately there is um we can't say that but that has to do with a few factors so yes it is a one a day pill um and you do take it to reduce acquisition it's 99.5 percent effective in reducing acquisition from the iprex study which was done uh with msm so men to, who have sex with men i believe there's some trans individuals in there it's still really hard to get that data because they're not always classified appropriately or a trans man who was in the study and they just never know yeah, you know, because you know, we live in a liberal city, or I, I, you live in San Diego. I live in LA. I used to live in LA, and oh, really, <laughs> um, I, I'm actually on a clinical trial right now for prep. Oh, really? They're testing bone density loss, I believe. Oh, I heard of that study. Yes, but when I they sign me up for it, they ask if I was assigned male at birth, and I was like, "This is amazing!" And it would only happen in Los Angeles. Well, you're actually going to be seeing that in all the major cities here in California. Really? Yes, because it's kind of going across the board. So. Because of that, everyone's kind of connected. And so we're getting that changeover right now. Fascinating. When you were diagnosed with HIV, we're talking about medical support. But in terms of the more like emotional side of that, did you, were there support groups that you, was it important for you to seek out community of people? Yeah. I mean, I don't know anybody that could get diagnosed with HIV and be transsexual <laughs> and not want support. You know, it's when you get HIV, I got it when I was I don't know, 21, 22, I got raped. And then I got diagnosed when I was engaged to this girl who eventually left me because I was positive. But when it came to support, that was a real issue. There was no group in San Diego when I moved down there for HIV and trans individuals. You know, there was all these groups for MSM, HIV positive guys, which was great. It's, you know, it's this strong network, but I couldn't, I couldn't feel like I 
fit in with them. It was their space and it was like that solidarity that I was just kind of outlier. Luckily enough, now in San Diego, we have some groups. I know LA has a lot of groups too. And so it's really nice to see that there's mental health services and support groups now focused on this huge issue because it's really hard to deal with, you know, thinking that you're this, you know, HIV positive, undesirable person or, you know, you're diseased or whatever it is that you emotionally go through. It's almost like a grieving process. Like when someone gets cancer, you know, they kind of go through that grieving process, stage of grief. Um, it's kind of the same way. You know, you get angry, you're frustrated, you're mad at yourself, you're mad at the situation, you think you're not good enough, or you think you're diseased, or whatever it is. And it just takes a while to get through that. Um, I'm past it now, obviously, but... Uh, and, and what helped? Was it just simply time? It was time. Um, it was a good support network. Um, you know, it's really just learning to love yourself and, you know, knowing that this doesn't define me. And that was one of the major things is that I felt like it defined me in so many ways. I'm just silly. I'm just kind of the screw off, silly, fun, techie, weird stoner girl that, you know, being trans and being HIV positive is just a facet of my life. And that's why I do so much activism around this kind of stuff is mainly to normalize it for the gen next generation. They don't have to go through what I went through or my friends went through or everybody else, you know, before me or during this time. I think that is what I'm here to do. Did getting diagnosed with HIV, did that spur your political consciousness, for lack of a better word? Or have you always had this? No, idea? that spurred like a, a huge dive into lots of drugs and debauchery. <laughs> um, I don't know I, that that's uncommon. <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe to the extent I took it might be a little uncommon. I was a pretty balls to the wall kind of <laughs> girl back in the day. Basically... I had lived a very uh, wild life after high school um, on the edge of right and wrong. So because of that, when I moved to San Diego... What do you Diego, mean by the edge? Do you, is that like drugs and alcohol? I was alcohol like a or? huge drug dealer. And, okay. You know, I just saw a lot of stuff I probably shouldn't see or talk about. But also, like, I was too close to that lifestyle, mainly because it was just invigorating. I was excited. I wasn't... I was addicted to the high of of that environment, um, it was so different, starkly different from where I came from. So because of that, when I came to San Diego, we came to take care of our friend's mom who's dying of brain cancer. And I decided that I wanted to change my life and make a positive impact. I always felt like I was supposed to help people. I always care about helping people. That's the only thing I, I really truly like feel I'm supposed to do is to help people. From there, I started working with the T-Spot. It was the first year of their inception, but they all kind of bailed the leaders. After the first year, they had a lot of personal things they needed to do. And it got dropped on me. So I've kind of run with this. And it's got a lot of momentum now, which is really exciting. And what does the T-Spot do? So the T-Spot, we provide community outreach and education around trans, gender non-binary, and intersex individuals in San Diego County. Uh, we're currently starting a resource center. And we're looking to provide work jobs, basically, and job training, life skills, and then housing and some mental health services. So we're trying to build a community center for trans people, by trans people, which seemed to be something that we're lacking in San Diego and the community wants. And so we want to make this a scalable, repeatable process and give it to all other communities. We want to do it everywhere we can, not just in these major cities. The small cities are where they need it. I think about that all the time. Since we're a polarized country, we're moving closer to people who are more like us. You moved to San Diego, I moved to Los Angeles, and yet it's so drastically vital that people remain in these small towns to get to know people so that they can have their opinions of our people changed. Mm -hmm. And that's so necessary, and yet I don't want to do it. 
You know, I want to stay in West Hollywood surrounded by queer and trans people because that makes for a safer and more enjoyable life. I feel guilty about that all the time. Right? Don't you love it when you go to like that heterosif-normative environment and you're like, whoa, I forgot what this was like. Yeah. Or like you see a bunch of just straight people together, like holding hands and making it and you're like, wow, that's not two lesbians or two gay guys or like some trans people. Like, you know, it seems... Almost abnormal once you've like really entrenched yourself in a community. Exactly. And I, I don't think about how gay or not gay I am. I just am gay. And then I go to North Carolina and it's like, oh, wow, my pants are tight. And did I like, did my voice get too high? You know? <laughs> right? Ah, oh, that's the worst when you're transsexual. Like, uh, is my voice on point? No, it's not. Oh, hold on. <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah. It's, it's ironic to see it from, you know, you know, a gay man's perspective too, you know, you're still struggling with these like specific gender, you know, norms that you're supposed to conform to, which is asinine, right? Yeah. We've done a lot of work in terms of as a culture for uh, feminine people and women and they can do anything and they can be the bosses and all this stuff. And it, we've not yet caught up for men to like redefine what masculinity is. I'm not saying it's harder for men. I'm just saying that there, we've done this massive expansion of what it means to be a woman, which means anything at all. But for men, we're kind of still stuck in that historical masculinity log, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I was reading, uh, I think it was a blog post about that just the other day about how, you know, the gender evolution of males needs to happen now because, you know, we're still struggling with that. If you're not this certain type of male, you're not male enough. It's just like you're not trans enough or you're not gay enough. Yeah. Don't you, it's, it's, I think those social constructs put on by, you know, sect communities or sex within a community are, are, the, are problematic. Yeah. Because we used to also define manhood as getting married, having kids, um, maybe like beating your wife, you know, but like. <laughs> <laughs> If you're lucky, just kidding. Um, and then like bringing like home a paycheck so that your wife can cook meals. And now your wife has gotten out of the kitchen and you're realizing, do I need to now cook for myself? Like, how does this work? I don't know if this sounds like horrible, but you know, I think no, it's, it's like that. I saw that there's that one YouTube girl. She's like, if your man hits you, he loves you. Oh, and I was like, oh, no, girl, you need to get away from that. Like, well, we're talking about moving to a big cities. You said that you just didn't start your transition until you moved to San Diego. Is that correct? Yeah, but I was openly bi and um, trans after high school. I lost all my friends. Um, Where were you growing up? I grew up in Madera, California, then I moved to Fresno. You know, Madera is this podunk country town, 30,000 people. I grew up, you know, so far away from the city that you couldn't walk anywhere to a location to get any kind of, like, goods. The closest thing was a school and a church. Oh, and a cow field. I mean, so you could go cow tipping if you really wanted to. But Fresno, you know, I lived in um, an old wealth kind of area. So it was much different vibe and mentality, one would say. And one day, you know, my sibling decided to show off all my trans clothes so and my dildos and so you know all my friends stopped being my friends and that was kind of that time where i've just switched my lifestyle and i was just kind of open about it i knew that i was going to transition but i was like a good looking guy you know white male privilege you know start of your manhood you know you're all excited I was a bartender. Everybody loved me. I was kind of addicted to the lifestyle. Um, That's fascinating. You wanted to hold on to that. The power. Yeah. yeah. And it was really weird to let it go. You ever let man strength go? It's such a weird feeling, especially when you're like really into like the ability to be strong. Um, So that was like mourning like a a child dying or something like that. 
And eventually, you know, you get to the point where it doesn't matter anymore. You embrace the different side of femininity or whatever your transition goals are, if it's non-binary or whatever you lie in. But yeah, I, I really liked my old self. Um, I find my old self very attractive. If I could date my old self, I would. I, I think it's so important to hear, honestly, like people loving themselves pre-transition because that's like not the modern narrative we're told. Oh, of course not. Because, you know, it's so hard for you to accept, you know, everything. But to love your old self, that's just, you know, it's it's not a story I hear often. Yeah. Because there's usually bad experiences that go along with that. Sure, there's bad experiences, but I had a great time. And it's interesting as I get farther along in transition, I don't sometimes let go of that old self. It's really weird. It's one of those things I'm exploring as I go along. Are you talking about like possibly being non-binary or are these? Uh, there's just like scary? a feeling of like non-binary, two-spirited kind of undertone gotcha. because I mean, there's things that I've I've lived so far as a male that there's things that I just I don't know how to let go. Which is funny because I talk to other people who have transitioned over long periods of time and some of them feel that way, so others don't. I guess that kind of, I asked because it reminds me of what Kate Bornstein writes about where mm. she transitioned to female and then was like, you know, I like this body better, but I'm not male or female. And now we have the word non-binary, but when she was writing originally, it was the, the conversation stopped. It was not male, not female, period. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, she was a... She paved the, a road ahead of most people. And yeah. It's a little, she got a lot of flack for it, I think. But she's so right in a way. You know, I'll never be cis. So therefore, I'll never have a full immersion experience as a cis female. Maybe if I transitioned way younger. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to bleed. I mean, that's, <laughs> I'm not upset about that. <laughs> um, but, you know, girls who transition or guys who transition really young, they might have those experiences because you don't. Well, you're trans. So even in cis spaces, like I've got to the point where I'm adopted into, you know, female spaces as, you know, one of the other girls, which feels amazing. But there's still always this undertone that you're trans and, you know, you have this different life experience. I guess it could be like, you know, if you're a Canadian living in America, you'd still have a Canadian life experience or if you're yeah. Nicaraguan or whatever. And, and, and that otherness that you feel is that do you perceive it as a negative thing or just a what the way it is i think if you embrace yourself and embrace that part of you and really love it and you're genuine about who you are it's great it's a great experience and people also appreciate it and seem to resonate with that you know i know friends that have bad experiences and they're kind of negative or they don't really fully embrace or love themselves completely and you can see those negative experiences kind of being a part of that attitude or that thought process i generally have a good experience everywhere nowadays which is interesting and i can't help but imagine that that goes to what we're saying about living in a bigger liberal city well of course right so if i were to go back to fresno per se you know it's just like hey what's up guys but i looked super hot i'd probably get beat up or something in certain parts of town i'm sure it could in other parts of la but at the end of the day i used to be a crossdresser in compton Northside, long beach and i never got beat up so um, I was in rough neighborhoods doing stupid shit. So <laughs> I guess it's a, I, I, I like to think it's a case by case, you know, it's, it's based on the people. I, I think too, that you, you said you got HIV when you were raped. So many of the people that I know in my life got HIV because they thought they were in monogamous relationships and then this person was cheating on them. And I, I bring this up because I think there's again, a stigma about getting HIV when the person like had unprotected sex and it's all on them, but that doesn't really include all of the narratives about how you can get it. 
I agree. You know, we need to take a step back and stop blaming the positive person because most people who are positive and passive, they don't know. I get so much flack about being positive or having STDs because I have HPV too. I got it. It was a package deal. You know, it was a two for, <laughs> a two for one. Uh, but I get so much flack when I'm sex positive. We, me and um, are educating this group we call Prepinators down in San Diego. We educate people on sex. And we always talk about why would you think if someone's forward and honest and open and communicate about it, that you would acquire something with that person. They're probably going to be the best, safest partner you can have. Because they don't want to pass what they have. They're also sex positive and they're telling you and communicating. And they're saying, I get tested regularly. I use this kind of, you know, protection. So condoms and, you know, HPV vaccine, whatever else, PrEP. But it's not that narrative that usually is the one that's happening, especially the one that you're talking about. You know, so many people who don't just trust their partner and they don't feel like they should get tested regularly. And that is a problem, a systemic problem. We need to communicate that testing regularly is good for everybody. And it's free. There's so many free places to get tested, especially if you're LGBTQ. It's free and you can get it. And all you have to do is call a center or any type of organization, Planned Parenthood. You could find the resources. They are there and they want to help. And we have funding to help all individuals because at the end of the day, the less STDs, the less medical issues, the safer our community is, the better sex is going to be. You know, there's just this whole gamut of improving this whole sexual dynamic. When you're dating someone, do you reveal on the first date that you're positive? Like, when do you disclose that? So I, I have a polyamorous relationship. I'm basically married, not married to this girl. We own a data solutions company together and um, a house and we do Airbnb. We're very married, not married. We don't believe in the constitution of Mary. I think it's financial bondage. Um, but I do want the party and the dress to be fabulous. I'm telling you, it'll be a one rager. <laughs> you know, my other girlfriend, she's a porn star, which, you know, and she is also an escort. So there's always that risk variable, right? So when I go and meet someone new, like with her, I just like, she just sent me her test results because, you know, that's what an escort porn star has. You know, they test regularly. They're probably one of some of the safest, the higher end ones, because they have to test so regularly. And she just sent me like her, her test results. And I told her I had it. She's like, okay, cool. I'm on prep. And it was the best feeling I've had in a long time just to hear, oh, I'm on prep. It's okay. I don't care. And that's because she knows that I can't give it to her because I'm undetectable. You know, the CDC came out with, you know, if you're undetectable, you can't transmit. I want to stop there because I I think of myself as a smart person. I did not find out until the end of 2017 exactly what undetectable meant. This comes back to the education thing, yeah. right? You know, um, when you're undetectable, uh, I don't know the exact signs of like uh, your blood levels, but it means you cannot pass it to somebody else. So y your viral load yeah. is undetectable. So when you so you can't share the virus or, or transmit the virus because you can't even detect it on a Mill is something I'm not going to kill the scientific of name course. for it. So I've been undetectable for, you know, five, seven years. Whenever I got on medication, I've, I've been undetectable. So undetectable just basically means that it's not registering on your blood. Um, and then usually if you're undetectable, your CD4 count, which is your blood cells or your white blood cells count, is normal ranges. And then you have a percent. And usually it's in a normal range as well. I just wonder how many people hear the word undetectable, but they don't know what it actually means. A bunch. Because I tell because I date guys still. Once again, back to this whole, do you tell them on the first date? I tell them once they meet me in person. And some guys get really mad about that. 
they're like, well, why don't you tell me fucking earlier? Do my do I, should I wear my my AIDS cross? You know, or my yeah. My, bring your AIDS quilt around. Yeah, you know, should I wear a patch that says I'm positive? So treat me differently. No, I mean you should get to know me, and if we have a connection, great. Because both my po- partners are negative, and if I have had one for five years, and all my partners before have never acquired HIV or any of the STDs that I had, why do you think I'm telling you now in person? Because I don't want to give it to you. Right. I mean, there's just, uh, again, like the misconceptions. I feel like in the 80s and 90s, the big PR push was to tell everybody that you cannot get AIDS by touching another person's skin. You know, skin and skin contact. That's not what, uh, that's not how you get it. And then the conversation kind of hasn't progressed. I still get asked once in a while when people find out, like, is it okay to drink out of the same glass as you? Wow. And it's like, why the fuck would I give you this fucking glass to drink if you're going to get HIV? Why would I put that on anybody? Wow. I mean, it's it's asinine to think the way that some people, you know, it's just like, oh, did you know they're trans? Oh, I hear if you look at them, they turn trans too, right? I always like to say that. <laughs> so when I got diagnosed, I was living with some friends and they had cats and they had fleas. And they told me after I got diagnosed that I could not come into their house because they had fleas. Because they read somewhere on the internet that fleas transmit HIV. Asinine. You know, what's even better is... um. Since my girlfriend, one of my girlfriends is in porn, you know, I found out that the porn industry is so undereducated. They're so scared of HIV, but they're not scared of other STDs, which is weird. Apparently, it's a career ender. It's a big deal to have HIV. And I think it's kind of sad to think that the the thing that we all watch, (laughs) whatever kind it is, have such a misconception or so undereducated about sex, but yet they're the what we're looking for, for that representation of that sexual fetishes we want, that they couldn't even, they, they this would be an issue. Yeah. They should be at the forefront of sex education and sex positive dynamics. Well, we talk so much about representation on this podcast in terms of TV and film and books and um, trans representation and gay representation. And what we don't see often is HIV representation of something that's not a horror story. Right? Someone didn't die or... Right. We don't see the HIV positive person just like living and dating. We see them sick in bed and then dead. Right? And it's scary when you're sick in bed and you think that this could be the last time I'm alive because I'm so sick. Sure, that's scary. But you don't see all of the amazing moments where you're living life more than you did before. You can either let it take you down and bring it to the point where it's this burden, or you can make it empower you. And the goal is to empower people always. And so those positive stories, that's what we're trying to share. That's what we're trying to do. You know, we're people, we live life, we're excited. We want to interact with other people. We want to share our stories just like we want to hear your story. Something that I hear a lot, which kind of irks me, but it's that it's that HIV is no longer a death sentence. And even if that is true with proper medical care that not everybody has access to, it still is a very serious thing, though, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a trans woman who died in LA like a year or two ago from AIDS. Really? Yeah. Oh, the, I mean, it still kills people some places, you know, like in Africa. People are still dying, you know, certain parts of America, people are still dying. People are still dying from it, just not in the mass numbers that it's seen as this epidemic anymore. Right. Um, It's just something that we still shouldn't treat so lightly. No, yeah. I mean, when you get it, I mean, I felt like a death sentence. (laughs) You know, it was a big deal. 
You said that when you got it, there was a couple of years before you started treatment. Is that a, what was that gap? So back in the day, they believed that you shouldn't start medication until you have to, because there was really rough medication. I came around the time when Complera, which was one of the first um, one a day pills versus the cocktail. I was dating this guy. He was older and he had had hundreds of friends die. You know, that death sentence kind of wore off, you know, that whole idea and concept that, that you couldn't live further. But the effectiveness of the medication, you know, once you get to the one a days, I feel like it changed. The concept changed too. But we should take this very seriously. It's not a small virus. It's not a, a thing to joke about um, when it comes to, you know, finding a cure. We need to find a cure because people are still dying. Are we close to one? I mean, there's plenty of studies out there. Um, there's a few that are very interesting, but I couldn't tell you. You know, I, I'm hopeful for a few, but when I talk to some of the doctors at the clinic who are leading researchers in the field, especially in regards to trans and HIV positive, they don't seem too optimistic. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. They don't seem too optimistic the ones right now are the ones that are going to equal the cure. I think we're going to get there, but probably in like 10 to 15 okay. years. We'll see if they roll it out, though, for everybody, because it's a profitable business, right? Oh, yeah. America's a capitalist market. If we do find a cure, it's going to be, it could be expensive as hell. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, you know about Tim Brown? I don't He's think uh, so. the only person that's been cured of HIV today. Basically, what happened was he's a German citizen. He got, a, he was HIV positive, but he got lymphoid cancer or leukemia, but he did cancer therapies, so bone marrow transplant. What happened was it reset his whole system, and he got rid of HIV during that period. That's fascinating. Yes. Does that give us hope, or is it like a one-time thing? So there, the, <laughs> you, you think, need cancer I, first. <laughs> I, I think the well, it works for cancer. That's why they've done it. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the doctors said is that's a seventy thousand dollar question because that's what it costs or something for his treatment. <laughs> Oh, wow. Um, and then they, doing they all have, the trials have, for that. Yeah, there's speculatory, you know, statements. But I don't want to say that that's going to be a, a fix-all. But it, I had heard over the years that, that was a possibility. It's just nice to see that something did work. So there is that real true hope that, all right, well, one person's already cured. We have made strides. People aren't dying every day. You know, there aren't millions of people dying. This is this is good progress. Yeah, that's huge. And now we've come all the way to serve all the other communities. I think, you know, we need to now also address to people of color. Now the trans people are kind of in the spotlight. It's cool to be trans all of a sudden, right? It's so much more fun to know both sides. <laughs> are you are you saying, when you, when you say that trans people are in spotlight, are you saying that in terms of like HIV, like research? No, I'm just saying that trans in people life. are in the spotlight in media. You know, it's a hot topic. You get something trans that's worthwhile, you know, it's a hot topic. And hopefully it's not just a fad. I don't think our community is quiet enough to make it a fad. <laughs> you know, it's just like Stonewall. We threw the first shoe, right? <laughs> Sylvia Rivera chucking a shoe. What happened? Civil rights movement. Trans people took the back burner and were there the whole way along. Right. And we supported everything the whole way along. And it's nice to see now that our community is being supported now. And in regards to the high rate in terms of people of color, I can't help but draw a connection between the over-policing of Black people and the lack of access to education and health and how it's all related. It is all related. We're and seeing it everywhere. That is the reason. I mean, it's systemic. We need to create jobs. We need to create communities that are positive, that 
you know, give people what they need. We need to give better access to healthcare. We need to give these immigration services so people can be part of their family and they don't have to resort to any kind of, you know, illicit work because they can't get a gainful employment with their community because yeah. they're an immigrant, whatever it is. So, so we were talking earlier about the study that uh, you're part of. How far into it is it and how much longer is there? Okay, so we just are about seven months into it. It's an 18-month trial. Um, so we got about another 11 months. Uh, onboarding for the study is going to be for the next six months. Uh, so, Are there other studies like this being done for the trans and gender nonconforming community? There are other studies. Um, Sarah Janela, I I'm going to crush your last name. I'm terrible. Um, she's doing a really interesting study. So she's taking HIV positive pre-transition trans females. And when they are getting on uh, hormones, she wants to see if, if hormones play an interaction with HIV, the reservoirs of HIV. So estrogen plays a part positive or negatively with the reservoir of HIV. So we will find out through this study if testosterone and estrogen helps HIV medication be more increase the the effectiveness. Fascinating. I think the study is important. You know, I think that if you're just questioning, if you're looking for to be more safe sexually, or if you're looking for any type of information, you know, visit one of the clinics, talk to us, talk to a different clinic, whatever, wherever you feel comfortable. Where, where can people in smaller communities beyond word of mouth, how can they find trans competent doctors? Um, that's, that's, that's the way that's, that's hard, right? Um, you know, generally, you just have to Google and ask around in uh, trans groups. You know, there's lots of social media groups that are just trans specific. You can go in there, you know, that there's a lot on Facebook, there's just a lot in general. And they can, they're just basically a conglomerate of trans people. Some of them are based off of, you know, surgeries, some of them are where you can find doctors, some of them are just, you know, solidarity. So if you're looking for medical services, I would try to first, you know, ask, you know, one of those organizations locally if there's a center or if there's you know p flag or whatever outside that go online our community supports each other so thoroughly online it's one of the only places that you can really find community and it's always there and it's strong it's really strong and that is our show. If you love our podcast or even just like it a little bit, subscribing and leaving a comment on iTunes is one of the biggest ways you can help our show grow. That and then telling three of your best friends. So if you do either one of those things, please tweet at me and let me know. I would love to say thank you. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. That's also a great way to recommend guests. And then I plugged my AIDS Lifecycle ride in the beginning. I'll skip over that now. But don't forget that you can sign up for our email list at lgbtqpodcast.com. That way you can stay up to date on all new episodes and live shows and naked pics, lgbtqpodcast.com. Special thanks to our partners at Panoply, our old home at AfterBuzz TV, the Elon University in Los Angeles studio, Jason McMurdy, and everyone for listening. We'll see you next week.